Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you get your Bibles out, open them up to Proverbs, the 24th chapter. Proverbs chapter 24, we're going to launch from there, and we will be in the Bible a lot this morning. And so let's get those Bible pages turning or clicking, or if you've got a scroll, roll that open. Let's get that ready, and let's be working together in the Word of God for these next few minutes. As you're turning there, I will say how great it is to see everybody this morning. We have guests in attendance, and we're thankful for your presence as well. I bring you greetings from the 54th Avenue Congregation in Des Moines, Iowa. Had a good meeting with those brothers and sisters last week in that part of the world. and That was a unique week. I'd never been to Iowa. and Well, probably everything that you've ever thought about Iowa and your preconceived notions are probably correct. There's not a whole lot of excitement going on up in that area, but there is a sound church up there and folks that are trying to serve the Lord, and I'm thankful for the time I got to spend with them. But I'm just glad to be back home. No place like being at home and being with my brothers and sisters here at Lakeside. Hope you got Proverbs chapter 24 opened up because I want to do some reading. In Proverbs 24, I'm reading here in verse 30. Proverbs 24, beginning in verse 30. The wise man says this, Proverbs 24, verse 30. He says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw, and I considered it. I looked, and I received instruction. You know, there are a variety of ways to get and receive instruction. You can, for example, enroll in a college or a university, and there you can be taught various academic disciplines. You can go to pilot school and you can be instructed on how to fly an airplane. You can enroll in a cosmetology school and there you can learn and you can be certified to be a a beautician or to be a stylist. But you know, not every kind of instruction comes from a formal sit-down school type of setting. Our text here in Proverbs chapter 24 talks about another form of receiving instruction. And that is when we have the ability to look at and to observe from what we see and gain something from that. That we can get instruction through observation, through looking and paying attention. And that's a pretty important idea, particularly for us this morning. Because I'd like for all of us this morning to to go to school. That's right. Young and old alike, I want to enroll all of us in a school this morning. This morning I'm enrolling each and every one of us in the school of the cross. And that school, of course, meets on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It's called Calvary. And our teacher in this school, it will not be a professor or an instructor in kind of the professional sense. No, our instructor on this occasion is going to be an old rugged cross. Because this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to just look at the cross. And I'd like for us to receive instructions. Because our purpose this morning, class, is to learn what the cross has to say to us today. I know that this morning there are many churches that are looking instead at the empty tomb. And that's important. And I preach about the empty tomb and preach about the resurrection of Jesus, thinking about the significance of that. But today what I want to do is I actually want to rewind a little bit. I want to go to some of the events before the tomb. I want us to look at that very instrument that was used that ended up necessitating the tomb. I want us to look at the cross 
and to see what we can learn from it. And the reason that I want us to do that this morning, and in fact the reason that I want us to learn through observation, is because I fear that sometimes when we talk about the cross and we think about the cross, we tend to do that in very, very theological and very doctrinal kinds of ways. I was actually reminded yesterday that I preached on the cross back in September. And at that time, I preached on the cross in a very doctrinal sort of way. We talked about some heavy concepts like propitiation and justification. Those are meaty ideas and we kind of had to dissect those and come to a greater understanding about what they mean. And while those are vitally important concepts and we need to understand what they mean, they help us to better understand books of the Bible like, like Romans where I'm preaching from this year. My fear though is that sometimes we study in such a way about the cross that it becomes so ac academic that it almost just kind of just borders on just book learning. We can become so rigid in learning about the, the intellectual significance of the cross that we forget to see beneath all of that and see just the fundamental messages that the cross is conveying, which means that by us enrolling in the school of the cross this morning, not only are we going to have the opportunity to have our minds shaped by it, but we're also going to have the chance to have our hearts shaped by it. And so, I wish I'd have had somebody ready to ring the bell. I would have said ring the bell. Because class is in session. Let's see the cross. Let's consider the cross. And let's see what we can get from it. Three things this morning that we learn from looking at the cross. And the very first of those is this. When we look at the cross, it is there that we learn and see the incredible awfulness of sin. You know, if you read in your Bible, what kind of words does the Bible use to describe sin? Well, the Bible uses words like wickedness, wrongdoing, filthiness, immorality, iniquity. You just hear those words rattled off and those are dark. Those are somber. Those are heavy words. Those are words that to our mind, they demand judgment for wrongs that are being committed. Look, for example, we see some of those words used in Isaiah the 53rd chapter. In Isaiah 53, in our Bible reading schedule for this year, we will soon be in Isaiah the 53rd chapter. We'll be in kind of some familiar territory at that time. But I want to notice it today because there the prophet, he looks forward and he speaks about the cross and he uses the kind of language about sin that God wants us to understand about sin. In Isaiah 53, look in verse 5. There Isaiah says, but he was wounded... For our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The Bible takes sin very seriously. Just that terminology alone commands our attention and it speaks to just how dreadful sin is. Interestingly, the Bible does not ever use the term that we so often use to describe sin and that's the word mistake. And that really is where our culture is, isn't it? When we talk about wrongdoing and we're trying to get people to think about sin, we hear things framed in, in terms of, well, it was a mistake that was made. I made a mistake. It was a misjudgment on my part. It was a miscalculation. I, 
I misspoke. It was a misunderstanding. In fact, our society has developed just a whole, a whole glossary of terminology and phrases to make sin not only more palatable, but, but actually it kind of makes sin sound more appealing. It's not drunkenness. It's having a good time. It's not an abortion. It's being pro-choice. It's not adultery. It's having an affair. What's the problem there? What's the problem in all of that? The problem, I believe, is a failure to look at the cross and to see sin for what it truly is. Awful, dreadful, abhorrent, and wicked. If you're still there in Isaiah 53, pick up in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Why is this happening to the suffering servant? Why is Jesus dying on the cross? Why is his body left to hang there, suspended between heaven and earth, tortured and twisting and writhing in agony? The answer is sin. Sin is the reason that this is happening to Jesus. Because sin is so awful and so terrible. Jesus went to the cross because of my sin and because of your sin. Jesus did not die because of a, well, because of a slight clerical error. Jesus did not die because someone at some point had a momentary lapse in judgment. Jesus did not die because you or I had some areas in our life that could use some improvement. No, Jesus died on the cross because we willfully and intentionally chose our will over God's will. Can I say that again? Because that's really a definition for sin. Jesus died on the cross because you and I selfishly chose to rebel against the God who made us. We have sinned. And that is ugly. And it is awful. It is horrible. And when we look at the cross... I think we're forced to consider just how awful it really is. And can I just remind you that when we do look at the cross, let's be reminded of what we see there. Because what we see there is not an animal dying there. That's, that's not what's being sacrificed. You know, Isaiah 53 describes a lamb that's going to the slaughter, but it's not a literal lamb, is it? No, that's a metaphor. In fact, it's not even what we would call just a, just a good man. We see a good man that bad times befall him or difficulty happens to him. He's hurt and oh, I can't believe that that happened to such a good guy. That's not what's on the cross either. It's not even one of God's angels. One of the holy angels of the angelic host. It's not Michael on the cross. It's not Gabriel on the cross, even though we would be impressed with that. But sin is so terrible, so horrendous, so awful that the only one who can pay the price for your sin and my sin is Jesus the Christ, the very Son of God. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter writes this in verse 18. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 18, talking about things that just was not going to work to take care of sin. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Peter says there, "...knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, that, that wasn't going to get it done, 
Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The price of sin is so great that one and only one sacrifice would suffice. And that is the spotless Lamb of God. And the question is, as we look at the cross, he's already paying attention to that. Do we hear what the cross is trying to say to us? Do we see how the cross serves in many ways as a powerful deterrent against sin? You know, how can anybody gaze at the cross and see Jesus dying and suffering innocently in agony hanging there? How can anybody look at that and then shrug their shoulders and say, eh, sin, no big deal. Yeah, I'm not really all that worried about it. I don't know why everybody makes you know, preachers get up and make such a big fuss about sin. This is sinful and that's sinful. You know, it's just a little white lie. I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. How can anybody say that? How can anybody have that kind of disposition when they look at the cross? Look in Hebrews 6 with me. In Hebrews 6, look at what happens when you have that kind of a meh attitude towards sin. In Hebrews 6, look in verse 4. These are some of those sobering words in all the New Testament. In Hebrews 6 and in verse 4, For it is impossible, impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, but then they have fallen away. It's impossible to restore these people to repentance. Why? Because, verse 6, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and they are holding Him up to contempt. When we don't take sin seriously, when we don't battle against sin and temptation, then what are we saying? In essence, what we are saying is, is I really don't care what Jesus went through on the cross. I'm really not all that concerned about that. I really don't care about the price that was paid there. I don't fully see the awfulness of sin. And that is why we need to come to the school of the cross. That's why we need to come and sit at the foot of Calvary. In fact, not just this morning, but, but often. Regularly we need to come and gaze at the cross. We need to see how it instructs us on how awful and wretched sin truly is. That's not the only thing that we can see and learn by looking at the cross. Secondly, this morning, I would tell you that when we come to the cross, it is there that we see and we observe and we're able to learn about the triumphant power of God. Do you recognize, um, you recognize that symbol there? Seen that before? That is the universal symbol for the, the religion or the philosophy of Taoism, Taoism. Uh, that's sometimes just referred to as the yin and the yang. And we see that thing you know, used in various places in our culture. In fact, I wonder if you know, a lot of the places that you see it being used, if people even understand or recognize what it's supposed to represent. Uh, what that symbol represents, and, and this is kind of a, a, maybe an oversimplification on my part, but that symbol represents that there are two spiritual forces at work in this world. There is good and there is evil. There's the forces of light, and then there's the forces of darkness. And what that symbol is saying is that there is a constant battle between those two forces. But I want you to notice that what that symbol says, what the belief is, is that the forces of good and the forces of evil, they're in this battle, but it's a stalemate. 
Notice the equal sides there. Both portions are equally proportioned there. They're constantly fighting, but neither side actually has the upper hand. Evil can't push good all the way out, and good cannot push evil all of the way out. In Taoism, neither side ever really wins. Now, I would say that the first part of that, the doctrine that there is a battle between good and evil going on in this world, that's right. That certainly is biblical. That war has been being waged ever since Genesis, the third chapter, when sin came into the world in the Garden of Eden. But I want to say this morning that the Bible does not paint some kind of a picture of some kind of a 50-50 battle taking place, that there's some kind of a stalemate here and no side ever is going to triumph. What the Bible tells us is that there is a decisive winner. And the cross helps us to understand who that winner is. And in some ways, that's a little bit surprising. For example, look with me in Luke, the 22nd chapter. In Luke 22, this is on the evening when Jesus is arrested. And this is what begins the evening and into the morning hours of suffering that Jesus would endure. The unfair trials, the mocking, which then led to the scourging, the flogging, which then ultimately led to the crucifixion. On the surface, what this appears like is this looks like the beginning stages of victory for the forces of evil. This looks like the devil is about to win. But I want you to notice what Jesus says as he's being arrested. Look at these words. In Luke 22, he says in verse 53, he says, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this, this is your hour and the power of darkness. You hear it there? Jesus says, you're going to get an hour. That is, you're going to get a moment. You're going to get this one small window of time where Satan is going to get to bruise the heel. That's what was said in Genesis 3.15. But you know what? It's going to be a bruise, but it is not going to be victory. Darkness is not going to prevail at the cross. No, actually, quite the opposite. In fact, that was something that Jesus said regularly throughout His earthly ministry. Look, for example, in Matthew 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus used the illustration here about the strong man. And we're able to understand who the strong man is in light of the cross. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 29, Jesus said, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? The strong man in that illustration is the devil. And what Jesus is saying is He says, I'm going to bind the strong man. I am going to render him powerless. In John the 12th chapter, in John the 12th chapter, this is what Jesus had been saying all of along. In John the 12th chapter, look in verse 31. In John 12 and in verse 31, Jesus answered here as He's talking to the crowds of people. John 12 verse 31. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan... He will be cast out. Jesus says, I'm here now, and I am here to defeat the devil. And when's that going to happen? Verse 32. That's going to happen when I am lifted up from the earth. An allusion to the cross. All people will be drawn to me. Satan loses at the cross. 
Paul picks that idea up in Colossians, the second chapter. In Colossians chapter 2, we're just stacking up some passages here. In, and these are passages, a lot of these are passages we don't read very often. In Colossians chapter 2, I'm looking at verse 13. In Colossians 2 and in verse 13, Paul says that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Then notice verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what the cross is about. It is about a total triumph over sin and over evil. And that also even includes victory over the consequences of sin and evil. I'm looking for Hebrews now in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews 2, notice what the Hebrew writer says is accomplished at the cross. In Hebrews 2, look in verse 14. I, I feel like I've known people in my life who fit in these verses and need to find the truth that these verses convey. In Hebrews 2 and verse 14, for, excuse me, verse 14, I will tell of your name... Here we go, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. God is going to win. God is going to win powerfully at the cross. Going to destroy Satan. Going to destroy death. All of that is rendered mute and ineffective through the cross. In fact, when Jesus is even dying, while he is hanging on the cross, you can actually hear this in his words. I'm looking for Luke 23 now. In Luke chapter 23, as Jesus is being crucified between two criminals, one of those men comes to believe in him as, as the Christ, as the Messiah. And so he asks the Lord for, for mercy, to be remembered by him. And what does Jesus say to that man on that occasion? Does Jesus say to him, well, you know, I, I would love to, man, but, but I just can't help you. The devil's winning here. Can't you see? I'm nailed to a cross. I, God's not going to win here. God's going to lose. Is that what Jesus says? No, Jesus says to him in Luke 23 and in verse 43, He said to him, Luke 23, boy, I just keep getting in the wrong chapters. Luke 23, verse 43. My Bible is not cooperating. I'll blame it on Iowa. Luke 23, verse 43. He said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Does that sound like the language of somebody who recognizes defeat? Someone who is acknowledging that I, I've, I've lost? No. That's a guy who recognizes victory is about to take place. He is winning and he knows that he is winning. There is no despair in his voice. In fact, it is for this reason Jesus is able to later on the cross say, It is finished. You know, when we look at the cross, we do see that great struggle between good and evil, between light and darkness, between God and Satan. But that battle, it is, it's not even. It's not 50-50. It's not a stalemate. No, it is a complete and total victory for Jesus. And what we are learning from that is we are learning where it is that we need to be standing in that great battle. I know where I want to be. I want to be on Jesus' side. I want to be on the side of the victors here. 
The cross reminds us that no matter how, how dark our world may become, and we sometimes make comments that makes it seem like we're, we're really fearful of where our country and where our world is headed, so much darkness around us, it does not matter how bleak things may appear, if we are standing on the Lord's side, then at the end of the day, there is nothing for us to fear. We do not have to get all wrought up and we're wringing our hands and we're concerned and worried about what's the future going to hold and how is all this going to turn out. We know. We who are on the side of the Lord, we know how it turns out. The cross announces that God's power has secured victory over sin and over evil and over death and over Satan. Jesus came and He invaded the devil's turf. And the cross tells us emphatically that He won. Which brings us to that third and final lesson this morning that we are able to learn when we observe and see and examine the cross. And that is that the cross teaches us about the amazing love of the Lord. How much does God love us? Well, I believe the cross answers that. Would you be finding John the third chapter, please, in your Bible? Be queuing that up in John chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me just ask you, what is, what is the mark? What is the test of real love? You know, how do you know when someone really loves you? Well, I would submit to you that real love is demonstrated whenever there is sacrifice. Isn't that true? Whenever you are willing to give something up, particularly if that thing that you are giving up is very, very precious and very valuable to you, when you're willing to give something up and do something for somebody else and, and maybe not even expect anything in return. Real love, for example, is demonstrated with our kids. Whenever we stand out in the blazing hot sun having t-ball practice for hours on end on a Saturday afternoon. Real love is demonstrated to our kids when you forego an afternoon of hanging out with the guys to instead be present for a very important tea party with a little girl and two teddy bears and a pink rabbit. That's, that's sacrificing. That's love. When we sacrifice for our kids, that's how we show our love. And that's true in other areas of life as well. That's true in our marriage. Whenever we're willing to sacrifice for our spouse, that we don't always have to go to the places that I like to eat. We want to consider you. What do you like to eat? What do you want to watch on television? It's not just about what I want to do. That's evidenced in like the military. When soldiers are willing to enlist... And they're willing to go to the front lines. Those men who stormed the beaches of Normandy. And they were willing to risk their lives to sacrifice and lay down their lives in order to win victory and freedom and all the other privileges that we enjoy for others. We understand that. We understand that sacrifice, it is at the heart of real love. It's giving something up. I love you. And the way that I'm going to show that to you is by giving. Do you got John the third chapter now? With that context, that helps us to understand John chapter 3 and verse 16. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Somebody asked, how do you know that God loves you? Somebody asked, how do you know that God is not just some big, mean, domineering overlord and tyrant and His real desires to just smite everybody? How do you know that God actually has real care and concern and love for His creation? I think all those questions are fully settled at the cross. 
Because God so loved the world that He gave. He gave something. And not just anything, He gave His only begotten Son. That was the ultimate of all sacrifices that has ever been made. You know, right about here is where I'm, I'm really almost inclined to try to you know, have an illustration, to tell some story of, of heroic sacrifice, to tell you a story maybe about some soldier who, who sacrificed in an amazing way for, for his fellow soldiers and for his country. Or to tell you some story, I've read stories like this before, about people who were drowning and someone was willing to swim out to them even in the midst of turbulent seas and they were able to give them a life jacket so that that person could be saved and that person who went out to save them, they ended up dying themselves. Or to talk about some story of someone who heroically ran into a burning building and they were willing to risk life and limb in order to save someone else and get them out before the building collapsed. I admire that kind of heroism and I trust that you do as well. And I certainly don't want to diminish any of those acts of heroic deeds in any way. But what you and I need to realize is that when we talk about the cross... The cross was not some emergency, oh my, humanity is lost. Hey Jesus, we need you to hurry up and run in there and do something about it. That's not how this worked. Jesus did not just rush in at the last second and oh, I'll jump on the cross and that will take care of this problem. No, the cross, the cross was planned. The cross was a planned sacrifice. And that says something about how much God loves us. God loves us so much that at the very beginning, even before the official beginning of time, God had a plan in mind, and then He began to set into motion all the things that needed to happen, put into place all the things that needed to be there in order to make the Savior possible that you and I would need. In Genesis, or excuse me, in Galatians chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 4, I want you to notice that the Bible does not say that the cross was just, it was just an act of happenstance, it was just some kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision to, hey, we've got to do something heroic here. No, that's not the way that the cross worked. In Galatians chapter 4 and in verse 4, Paul here speaks about adoption. And he says in Galatians 4 and verse 4, he says, when the fullness of time had come, that is, at exactly the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, that says something about how God was planning your salvation. God planned that because He loved you. In Acts the second chapter, in Acts chapter 2, the very first time that the gospel was preached publicly, Peter emphasized to that audience, many of whom were people who were guilty, like directly guilty and responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, he says to those people that, hey, what happened at Calvary? It was not simply the result of a bloodthirsty mob. That's that's not just what was happening there. Was there a bloodthirsty mob? Yes, there was. But that's not all that was at play there. In Acts chapter 2, he says in verse 23, in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 23, this Jesus, He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless, lawless men. You know, the cross did not just happen to happen. God made it happen. And He did that because He loves you. And He did that because He loves me. From Genesis chapter 3 to the promises that were given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to the covenant that God made with Moses and with Israel to the promises that were then given to David all the way down to Isaiah's prophetic words about the suffering servant 
God, all throughout time, He has carefully worked and moved and acted so that His Son would come here and die. And it was an act of love. That's how much God loves us. Think about the the amount of time and energy and effort that went into that. The planning, the foreknowledge, the determination that tells us about great love. Because real love sacrifices and it gives. And let's make extra clear that we understand who it is that Jesus is dying for. Who is it that He was given for? Was He being given for for really wonderful people who were just so good that you know we just deserve the very best that heaven could give to us? Is that who Jesus was given for? In Romans the 5th chapter, one final verse today. In Romans chapter 5, when we gaze at the cross, we come to realize who it is that Jesus did come for. And actually, that just heightens even more the amazing love that was demonstrated there. In Romans 5 and in verse 6, we'll be talking about this chapter uh, very soon, probably here in the next couple of weeks. In Romans 5 and in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I do think that sometimes we take the cross... Let me take that back. I take the cross for granted. As if somehow it was just, it was just kind of our birthright. You know, God was just kind of expected to do that. I mean, we are His prized creation. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creative work. And so of course, God created us. God's going to create a way for us to be saved and to go and live with Him. But I need to be reminded. I need to look at the cross and be reminded, God didn't have to do that for me. God didn't have to do that for you. In fact, Romans chapter 5 bears out that we did not deserve it. Sinners do not deserve salvation. What sinners deserve is punishment and condemnation. That is what makes the cross the consummate symbol of God's amazing love. And that means, just practically speaking, that never at any point can I doubt or question God's love for me. It is an absurd thing for someone to ask themselves, I just don't know if God loves me. I'm just not sure that He loves me. Are you kidding me? How can anyone convince themselves that God does not care about me, God is not concerned about me, that God does not have real love for me? When you sit down and you observe the cross, it is there that you really see what love is all about. In fact, when you see that love, it then encourages you to try to demonstrate that same love toward others. You know, maybe it is for this reason that George Bernard, back in 1912, he was prompted to write that wonderful hymn, in which he said in that hymn, he said, In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see, which was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. When you enroll in the school of the cross, you will too learn of its rugged beauty. And you can forever be changed, if you'll let it, by what it is teaching. Now, I realize that right now may not seem like the very best time to be encouraging everybody to be enrolling in school and talking about going to school, considering that for many of our young people, 
This is the beginning of spring break week. And so they really don't want to be thinking about going to school and classes and all that kind of stuff because they're, you know, they're looking forward to a much needed break from all of that. But I should tell you that there is a school that is in session all the time. And maybe we realize we're in that school every first day of the week when we gather around the table and we observe the Lord's Supper because it is at that time that we fixate and we gaze upon the cross. We go to school at that time. But I'm suggesting to you this morning that it is not just limited to those few precious moments when we observe the supper. All the time, constantly, the cross continues to teach us. It continues to draw us to the love of God. It continues to help us marvel at the power of God. And the cross continues to confront us with just how awful sin really is. And that is what the school of the cross is teaching us every single day when we let it, which means that right now, right now is examination time. And I realize when you say examination in the context of school, people get really nervous, Uh uh-oh, I'm not good at taking tests, I'm not good at exams. Well, don't worry, you don't need to get out a pen and a piece of paper. You're not going to be called upon to... uh, Recite memory verses about the cross. That's not what this exam is. You're not going to be quizzed on all your Bible knowledge of the events surrounding the cross. No, this exam is going to be administered individually, inwardly. And it's really just one simple question. Is my life defined by what the cross is teaching me? Are these truths that we've talked about this morning, are they decisive and are they evident in who I am? Do these truths shape me? Do they shape how I think, how I act, and how I live my life? That's the entire point of attending the school of the cross. To become not merely a student in this school, but even more so, a better word, to become a disciple. To become a follower of the one who is hanging and dying on that cross. This morning, if you are not a Christian... I should certainly hope that these fundamental truths about the cross, that they would be sufficient for you. That they would be more than enough for you to see your great need to render your obedience to the gospel of Jesus the Christ. That suffering servant who died on that cross so long ago, he was raised just a couple of days later. You know, if the cross was the end of the story, it'd be a pretty sad story. But he was raised a couple of days later. And as a result, He is now reigning in heaven as Lord of lords and King of kings. And that means that you owe Him the service of your life. He is the Lord. Can we help you today to take the crucial steps to become a Christian, to become a disciple and follower of Jesus? If you would be willing to confess your faith in Jesus as God's Son, turn away from sin, that's called repentance, and then be united with Jesus in the waters of baptism, to be united in His death, His burial, and His resurrection, then you can come up out of that water a disciple, a student of Jesus, a follower of the Lord. And you can then join the rest of us as we seek to have our lives shaped and molded by the cross every day that we live serving the King. If we can help you to become a Christian today, Brother or sister, if there's sin in your life, if there's something that's amiss that needs to be corrected, if we can help you to be a better Christian today, then all things are ready today for us to assist you and to help you in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're subject to heaven's invitation in any way, we're imploring you to come forward and to do something about that. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.